I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. Jared Allen with the... This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, a podcast about the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA, named in honor of soon-to-be Cleveland Cavalier All-Star Center, Jared Allen, a man not beloved by Joe Ingles. But it's not Jared Allen's fault. Last night, Joe Ingles was just... Mad at the world, probably in part because he didn't make a single shot from three-point land. Oh, for four, but a couple of solid air balls mixed in there. Just one for five from the floor before being ejected with a meager two points to his name on the evening. After taking some cheap shots at Jared Allen, including throwing an elbow towards his general neck area after he dunked all over you. But you return to the locker room. To watch your team completely collapse in the third quarter. And that's what you deserved. Boyan Bogdanovich picked up where he left off, shooting three for 14 from the floor, himself an abomination. If you're a foreign player with a light skin complexion for the Utah Jazz, you sucked yesterday and helped lead the Cleveland Cavaliers to yet another victory, cementing their spot firmly as the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference. 24 and 18, holding off the Charlotte Hornets, who are on a streak of their own. Four victories for them, seven of their last 10. They are right on the heels of the Cavs, but then you have some breathing room. The Raptors, the Wizards, the Celtics, a little bit worse. Not quite as threatening as the Hornets in this last run. Now, the Raptors, they have been surging. Fred Van Fleet playing incredible basketball this month. They've won seven of their last 10, but fortunately, they dumped their last game. The Wizards, they've won three in a row. The Celtics, they've won three in a row. But they struggled leading up to that. So they're a little bit further down. We could hold them off into next week. Tomorrow night, the Cleveland Cavaliers are looking at what should be a victory as they take on the San Antonio Spurs, who are just starting to get everybody back together after a rash of COVID protocols. Derek White, by all accounts, will be back tomorrow. And so they will be at near full strength. But you can't stop Lamar Stevens. Lamar Stevens deserves to be the lead of tonight's podcast after what was the best game of his short NBA career. Since Rubio's gone down and since the situation has arised that unfortunately has forced Isaac Okoro out of the lineup, we've got a chance to see Stevens play the last six games as a starter in those games shooting 61% from the floor, shooting nearly 38% from three. Now, none of those were short corner threes, not a single one. He is doing his damage from the elbows. Not only has he knocked down a handful of threes, he's certainly not a sniper by any means, but that's what you want from a guy like him. That's what we all want from a Coro. We just want them to be enough of an off-ball threat and take advantage of situations where too much attention is being paid to Jared Allen or Evan Mobley Get some backdoor cuts for dunks. He did that last night. If guys come up on him, put the ball on the floor, get to the rim, force contact, finish through that contact. He did that last night. The third quarter comes out of the gate. The game is still close, and Stevens drops 15 points in that quarter. But more importantly, the first 13 points for the Cleveland Cavaliers all came from Stevens. And you saw a little bit of everything. You saw pull-ups from the elbows. You saw him drive all the way to the rim, 
finish through contact, and knocking down threes. And getting to the line. A very serviceable 10 points a game, four rebounds a game, all in just 23 minutes a night during this six-game run. But last night especially was his most impressive performance. 10 for 15 from the floor, 23 points, seven rebounds, a couple of steals, efficient throughout. And that, coupled with a triple-double from Darius Garland, another solid night from Mobley, Jared Allen, Lowry Markkinen, the only player in the starting lineup who didn't finish shooting above 50% from the floor was Darius Garland. But that is forgivable when the line that you put up consists of 14 assists, consists of 10 rebounds, and a minimal two turnovers. Most of our turnovers last night came from the front court. So while we finished the game with 13, which is not terrible by any stretch of imagination, it just happened to be far more. What's amazing here is that the Jazz only had seven turnovers against the Cavs, and they still lost the game by 20 points. It truly is a testament to how terrible. The only Jazz that I thought played above the level that I expected were Jordan Clarkson, who led the way for them with 22 points, and Eric Paschal, 8 of 11. He looked good. Despite being undersized, they were playing undersized most of the way, but he actually looked effective in the minutes that he was out there on the floor, played a little bit of bully ball, made some buckets at the rim, and at least tried to keep it close until the Cavs absolutely blew the doors off of the Jazz in the third quarter, outscoring them 30-16 to 16 and just holding on throughout the fourth quarter when it became garbage time, and we got to see Mobley do a little bit of everything. Going into that fourth quarter, he was fairly quiet, but it looked like there was a strong possibility until he got yanked at the very end of Evan Mobley being able to get a triple-double himself. Six points, four assists, a couple boards in the fourth quarter, but that left him over the course of the whole game just missing out on what could have been his first career triple-double. He finished with 15 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists. Now, we've kind of talked about the statistical highlights, but the most incredible thing, of course, was Lamar Stevens. And I'm not even saying this just based on the stat line. You could cherry-pick box scores and say, oh, well, of course, last night was his best game as a pro. But it's not just that he scored a lot. He doesn't have to do that in the role that he's in. But if you look at what he did, against the Golden State Warriors, a game where we were largely overmatched, and a lot of the other guys didn't show up, and he was very respectable in that game. 17 points, 8 of 11 from the floor. And then last night, against the Utah Jazz. These are the types of games, they make you feel like it transcends just the numbers. And what I mean by that, the confidence in the moves he did make, and how quickly he got into those offensive looks when he had the slightest bit of an opportunity. Guys got too close to him, he put the ball on the floor. And he's gotten better and better as time goes on with dribble into the post, put your back to a guy, make a move over either shoulder, and still manage to finish. With him and Okoro, you've always known those are fairly big bodies. Guys who are mobile and have some size who should be able to use their body to their advantage to either create contact and get to the line or to hopefully finish despite getting contact. But Okoro, at times he's done that. And at times, it looks like all of his physical specimen attributes that we see, the biceps, the build, they haven't translated into being an effective addition to his offensive game. But what we're seeing from Stevens in this last little stretch with him as a starter that I find extremely encouraging is he's playing to those strengths. He's finding ways to get to the rim or get into traffic, and whether it be pull-ups 
or whether it be finishing at the rim, he's done it with high efficiency, but it's more the confidence that I find the most encouraging. He's doing it more frequently. This is a guy who barely ever shoots. So to see him go into this last six games and have three of those games where he shot double-digit attempts, that's what I want. In the last three games alone, this is a man who's made 22 baskets and only taken 31 attempts. That is exceptional. I'll be the first to admit, I didn't buy in to him before the season started. I know we gave him minutes last year, and he even had a game winner, and that was all fine and good. But leading into the season, I was more eager to play Dylan Windler. But now there's moments where Okoro has had stretches where he's been on a roll, of course, right before he went into COVID protocols. That was his best little run there. This is a stretch from Stevens that makes me think I clearly put my money on the worst horse possible. Because while Windler's had moments where he's looked effective, he still doesn't assert himself in the offense. You always feel like the stuff he gets is as more of a passive, distant option. Stevens asserted himself. In a close game at halftime, he came out of the gate looking to score. And he was doing it. Of course, it's easier to celebrate him in a scenario where we got to see a little bit of everything. But foul shots, pull-ups from the elbow, going to the basket, scoring with his back to the basket, and hitting threes, it was the complete package on display last night. And while I'm not saying that will translate on a night-in, night-out basis, that's what we want from that spot, whether it's a Coro or Stevens. The problem with Windler is he's basically only a spot-up shooter. And while he has more three-point potential than either of those guys, theoretically, it doesn't matter if he won't take shots except when he's absolutely wide open. Now, if you're saying corner threes, who do I trust? Yes, it's still Windler. But the reality is he is such a distant afterthought in the offense, he's not getting up looks. And that is his upside compared to the other two. Guys like me who were hoping for Windler to get an opportunity, we're doing so because of the offensive upside. Everybody's always acknowledged Decoro and Stevens, they are better defenders. It didn't seem like they had the floor-stretching possibilities that really made them much more than a kind of garbage man role in the offense. But Stevens is showing some real offensive skill during this last six-game stretch. There is a part of me that's like, well, maybe he just needed the confidence of knowing that he doesn't have to worry about being pulled out of the game and knowing that he can play through mistakes because the reality is we don't have another choice. If Rondo's out of the lineup like he was last night and Okoro's out of the lineup, you do you, Stevens. And if this is you, keep doing this. Don't worry about the other guys because if you can string this together consistently, we're going to have an interesting situation on our hands when Okoro does come back. Stevens looked like a legit member of that starting lineup these last three games. If he can continue this kind of momentum, Okoro is going to find himself in more of an equal timeshare. It's not going to be a situation like last season where Okoro was giving us 35 minutes but fairly ineffectively. We're going to be able to ride whoever the hot hand is. This is not me saying I'd take Stevens over Okoro, but I'll take this Stevens over just about anyone to take his minutes away. If this Stevens, if he keeps building upon this momentum, by the time Okoro's back, well then it's earn the minutes that you're on the floor. Okoro can start all he wants, but if we get this type of consistent aggression from Stevens, we ride it. We don't give him spot minutes. We let him build on this momentum because he's showing that within this freedom that the lack of opportunities and bodies has created, he is taking full advantage of it, which is all you can really ask. 
a lot of guys you hear about how, well, everybody in the NBA is good. They just don't have the opportunities. Stevens is starting to look like he believes he's the starter. And it makes me curious what we're going to see over these, well, this next week and a half, roughly, until we know where we sit with Okoro. And he's doing it without even taking three-point shots. This is a man who, over these last three games, when he scored 23 points, when he scored 17 points, when he scored nine points on just four or five from the floor, he has only taken three attempts from three-point land. That's one a game. And yet, he's still as effective as he's been because he's given defenders a variety of looks. It's not just straight. I mean, here's my one gripe about Okoro. He'll get you some stuff in transition. But nine times out of ten, the move he's going to give is come from the right side of the rim, throw your shoulder into the guy to create contact, and try to finish through it. Sometimes he'll do it. What Stevens has been doing has been eye-opening. Pull up from the elbows. And rather than just straight-line drives, which is mostly what we get from Okoro, we're seeing him slow down, turn his back to the basket, and force a guy to guard him in the post. That's a part of his game that we have not seen significant amounts of that now we're starting to see these last few games, and maybe it's just because he's been finishing, but damn, does it look good at the moment. And keep in mind, I realize there was a stretch of Okoro games right before he went down due to COVID protocols where it looked like it was all coming together for him. 16 points, 20 points, 18 points, 20 points. And in all of those games, he shot well in excess of 50% from the floor. He was closer to 80%. In most of those games, he had a 7-10 game, a 7-9 game, a 7-12 game, a 7-9 game, banging down three-pointers well over 50%. So this is not me forgetting. That was the best stretch of his career, and that is why I've been so eager for him to get back in the fold here as soon as possible, because he basically only got three games back, and then boom, down he went with the elbow injury on that, well, he ran into the screen from Capella, and. That's all we've seen of him. I'm eager to see, fully healthy, if he can resume what we started to see towards the beginning to middle part of December, where he ripped off huge games consecutively against the Timberwolves, the Kings, the Heat, and then the Rockets. That four-game stretch, I was elated. You can go back and listen to the episode. There's a full episode of me just lathering up Okoro the same way that I'm doing to Stevens right now. And the idea that I'm doing that to two guys who essentially are option A and option B when it comes to perimeter guys who can defend elite offensive options, well, I'm very excited about what it could lead to. Okoro has shown more, but Stevens has shown out in these last six games, and it's very encouraging. He's never truly gotten a long stretch of games where he's got to start. This is really the first time we've got to see him somewhat showcased in a minute spot because of the injuries we're dealing with, because of Rondo getting integrated with the team. I don't think this kind of usage is sustainable, of course. As Rondo gets more acclimated, he'll take more minutes. But I don't think there's a better case scenario than what we've seen over these last six games. It makes me look at a position that I think we all feel is the one unknown on the roster and say, okay, I've seen stretches of basketball this season where Okoro has looked like it's starting to come together for him. And I can't wait till he gets back because he really, he didn't have enough of a chance after the COVID protocols absence to get any momentum before the elbow injury. 
but I feel way better now watching this run of games from Stevens and knowing Okoro will be back in the fold soon to say, I'm not as despondent as I was when Rubio went down with the season-ending injury. At that point, I thought, oh, good Lord, we're going to have to give someone a major role who is just not ready for it. And now I look at it more like, well, we've got two guys who are playing above what my expectations were for stretches of games, not the whole course of the season, but pre-COVID Okoro for those three to four games and this six-game stint in the starting lineup for Stevens, those are the types of moments that you would put on a resume tape for them if you were compiling some of the best stretches of basketball of their young careers. They've both been good, and hopefully the collective effort of those two will make this Cavaliers team still a threat when the postseason rolls around, despite the terrible luck they've had with the injuries of Sexton and Rubio. Now, speaking of wing options, this is a story from today. This is more of an NBA general story. But one of the guys constantly rumored to the Cleveland Cavaliers in trade talks has been Cam Reddish because, presumably, he fits the age trajectory of this team. He's still young. He's still on his rookie contract. He serves a position of need, which is for a long guard option who can hit some threes, who can play some secondary playmaker, and a guy that a lot of Cavs fans have been interested in trying to acquire. That has come to an end today as he was traded to the New York Knicks in a trade that sent Kevin Knox back to Atlanta. But more importantly, it sent a protected first-round pick that belongs to the Charlotte Hornets. It was top 18 protected. They right now are right on the heels of the Cavs in the standings. So by all accounts, it probably will convey. I think this is good on multiple fronts. One, it answers a question. It ends a constant storyline for those of us who have been eager to see if the Cavs would throw themselves into that trade market. That is resolved. He is now with the New York Knicks. But it's one of the first trades to happen. More will escalate as we get closer to the trade deadline. More will start to go down. But we know what he his perceived worth was. When the Cavs swooped on Jared Allen, it cost them an end-of-the-first-round pick that belonged to the Bucks. And by all accounts, while this one is slightly better, it's a similar move mindset-wise for the Knicks because they brought in Cam Reddish, who at some point they're going to have to commit to pain, and in giving up a first-round pick to do it, this is a guy who in all likelihood they have to retain. From a fan reception standpoint, it would look terrible to move a first-round pick and then not keep him. But that kind of puts him in the driver's seat in terms of contractual demands. Now, we all knew that Jared Allen was highly sought after, but I think everybody can acknowledge that Reddish, while having great games here and there, I saw a game earlier this season where he dropped 38 points. So certainly, he's not without flashes but he's gotten nowhere close to providing the kind of consistent output and role that Jared Allen did while he was with the Nets. So the Cavs traded for Allen and immediately extended him for a huge contract, whereas the Knicks now are in a situation where this summer rolls around and they have to decide, what are we going to extend Reddish for, or are we going to let him play through this next season and hit you know, restricted free agency and risk offer sheets? So it's good for Reddish. Because clearly they see a role for him with the Knicks going into the future. But more importantly for him, he doesn't have to wonder if the team wants to retain him. You don't give up a first-round pick if you don't have interest in keeping a guy. So I certainly think it helps his contractual leverage. Now, how he'll play on the court, 
Time will tell. But if he does perform closer to the type of consistency that people seem to believe that he can have outside of that secondary role he had in Atlanta due to Trey Young being so ball dominant. Now, in New York, maybe he gets more consistent looks. Maybe he becomes a bigger part of the offense. And we see him earn the kind of belief that comes in trading for a guy like that. Or with Randall in place, with Quickly in place, with Barrett in place. And that's an interesting reunion, by the way, Reddish and Barrett in New York. But maybe with those guys in place, he'll still struggle to find the type of consistent output that people have been waiting on the edge of their seats, expecting him to string together at any point. In any case, the Cavs are effectively out of that conversation. So if they're going to bolster their roster by using Rubio's expiring deal or by shipping off Windler and some picks or whatever kind of maneuvers they're going to make, it's not going to be for Reddish, and they're going to have to turn elsewhere for wing help, whether that be Levert, whether that be, well, I don't even know, Eric Gordon, some of these guys. We discussed that on the last podcast. More options will certainly arise, but it's always a good place to look to teams that are terrible if you want to know, oh, what guys can be acquired. A laughable storyline I saw was, oh, the Lakers are looking to offload Bazemore, but they don't want to put picks. Well, you're not offloading Bazemore then. Nobody is giving you valuable assets to take guys off your roster who you just want to clear roster spaces. And that's essentially the same thing that keeps happening to the Lakers because they make these moves on name value and then they find themselves paying or just giving away guys like JaVale and Rondo, who may actually serve a role for certain NBA teams. The Lakers should have leaned into getting guys who are on the upswing of their career because now Monk is proving his value. And if none ever comes back, maybe he's got a chance. But as is typical, they gave away multiple less high-profile guys in Kuzma and Trez and KCP, and those guys are balling out in Washington. Have you seen Kuzma in this last stretch of games? Now, I realize Beal is out. Dinwiddie's missed a lot of games. Trez missed a lot of games. But the other night, he did something like 27 points and 22 rebounds. He was not kidding when he said that he was going to show out in his next location. And it's crazy looking around the league at all these guys who are former Lakers who are playing very impressive basketball elsewhere. And certainly, I'm not saying that's winning basketball. Russell had a great game the other night where he hit the shot that would have sent it to overtime only to be sent packing by Brandon Ingram who knocked down a 35-foot buzzer-beating three to win the game. And Kuzma was one assist away from a triple-double in their win against the Magic. 19 points, 10 boards, 9 assists. It's just interesting to see this core that they assembled pre-LeBron all thriving while the role players being brought in around LeBron look like square pegs and round holes. And that's clearly the thing that most people are discrediting in terms of the Lakers' title chances is nobody believes in the supporting cast that LeBron has. AD, too injury-prone. Russell, unable to adapt. A lot of these other guys, too old, too much expectation to place on them when they have to play big minutes in the playoffs. Monk has certainly impressed. but all, And I would even say Melo, to some degree, has been more than certain people expected. But when you look across the rest of that roster, Davis, underwhelming due to injuries. Russell Westbrook, exactly what people feared that he would be. And LeBron, who is, by all accounts, playing some of the best basketball we have ever seen from a 37-year-old. Probably the best basketball we've ever seen from somebody that late in the stages of their career. And even so, it still hasn't lifted them above a 500 basketball team. 
it's kind of unbelievable to think that this LeBron is scoring more than a 27-year-old LeBron did, and it still is not enough. I'm getting off on kind of a tangent, but I guess it's just out of the appreciation for what the Cavs have right now, which is a balanced, age-appropriate, you know, not one focal point and everybody else following their lead while they're dictated by, as much as I love LeBron, it is refreshing to see a Cavs team that's constructed in completely the opposite way, where it's a plan put in place through the front office that's being executed and there is stability and there's now an extension for Altman and seemingly Bickerstaff and Altman are going to be hand in hand for years to come. And that's fantastic because we never had, even while the Cavs were going on title runs, Year to year, you didn't know what would happen because LeBron was essentially working off one-year deals and always had a gun to the head of the people above him. And some people excel in situations where they're working under pressure, but it certainly didn't help us in the free agent market. And we've heard over the years, whether it was our test or Ariza, guys say, well, there was no long-term commitment. I chose to take my talents elsewhere, no pun intended, um, simply because... You don't want to tie yourself to a sinking ship. I think a lot of the frustration that we saw out of love over the last few years is he decided to stick around and he went through some bad teams, some rough games, and he was injured all the time. And now we're seeing happy Kevin because he's reaping the rewards of us taking our lumps and building through the draft and building through youth and developing a culture. And now Seemingly, the Cavs are on the other side of that, where hopefully year after year, we'll see the win totals climb and not just bottom out at the bottom of the lottery and get to the point in February or March where all we're really excited about is where we're going to be drafting. Now, what I'm most excited about is seeing how good we can be when we're as healthy as possible, because this Cavalier team is still very competitive, even though the winning totals have kind of plateaued a bit over the course of the last month as we've gotten into this softer part of the schedule. And I think seeing how good they did against the elite competition made everyone eager to see them pile up wins. And while certainly we've left some games on the doorstep that were winnable, now with the kind of play we were starting to see out of Coro, with what we're getting out of Stevens, and with the front court by and large healthy and Garland back, I can't wait to see what the Cavs look like heading into All-Star break. The remainder of the schedule this month has got a lot of games which they should fare very well in. The Cavs should win their next two games. They take on the Spurs and the Thunder. I mean, tonight the Nets are playing the Thunder and they're resting Kevin Durant. That is the sign of a terrible team when guys hide players against you. And instead, what the Cavs are getting are, oh, well, we're going to roll out Kyrie Irving when he comes into town to take on the Cavs. We're going to get to see one of his first few games back. He's had a couple under his belt already, but next week the Nets have four road games, so a lot of Kyrie Irving, and we got to see Klay Thompson, of course, but this month we get the Spurs still, we get the Thunder twice, we get the Knicks, who they've fallen off a cliff to some degree, and then we got some tough matchups in the Bulls and the Bucks. but we'll end the month with the Pistons and Pelicans back-to-back, so you look at that, Spurs win, Thunder win. Nets, I hope it's a win because I would hate to see Kyrie come in, dust off the Cavs, but that's certainly going to be a difficult game. The Cavs could drop games to the Nets, to the Bulls, to the Bucks. Those would all be understandable. But the Spurs, the Thunder twice, 
the Knicks, the Pelicans, the Pistons, they could pile up another six or seven wins if all goes according to, well, how most people would predict these games play out. But heading into All-Star break, we could be looking at an All-Star center, maybe a fill-in option if some guys go down with injuries for Garland to get in there. I don't see how he tops Van Vliet for an All-Star spot at this point. I think he would be hard-pressed. His month has been ridiculous, averaging over 30 points and just playing some huge ball. He's getting better and better. The Raptors are getting better and better. And certainly, while I thought it was kind of 50-50 maybe a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, I think if I'm being objective and fair, Fred is the choice for the all-star guard who I would take if I'm picking one of those guys to rise above the other in terms of whether it be Jalen Brown or Darius Garland or Fred. Fred would be the guy that I'd pick. And then probably LaMelo is also going to get the edge over Garland, rightfully so. But DG is right there. And if we get Allen in, I can live with that. I want one all-star. The selfish part of me wants one all-star. If we get none, I'll be a little bit disappointed. But just the fact that we have two of those guys in the conversation and we're looking at a runaway second half for Mobley where he probably slams the door on all the other competitors for Rookie of the Year. That's incredible. And you know what else is incredible? Last subject I want to hit on this week's Fear the Fro podcast. That the NBA All-Star game still is largely determined by fan vote. The fan vote counts for 50% of the NBA All-Star starter voting. The other 50% going to media members. Fans don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And they need to change this system. Just look at the results as of now. The voting continues through January 22nd at midnight. As of this morning when the NBA released how the fan vote is sitting at the moment. If the game were to be played based on the desires of the fans, the starters in the West, in the front court, would be LeBron James, Nikola Jokic. Now those two, very deserving. Both guys who probably should be. They're running away with 4.5 million votes, 3 million votes. The third place front court guy, the guy who would be starting if the fans dictated it, is Andrew Wiggins. He's ahead of Carl Anthony Towns. He's ahead of Rudy Gobert, Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, Paul George. That is asinine. Carl Anthony Towns, clearly the third best player who's actually healthy and who's played a substantial portion of the season, in my view, amongst the guys who should be in that front court. The fans would want Andrew Wiggins there. Then you go to the back court: Stephen Curry, John Morant, Luka Doncic, Clay Thompson is in fourth. He just came back. Most of these votes took place before he even saw the floor. And he and Russell Westbrook are both in the top six, ahead of guys like Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell, Anthony Edwards, all who've had much better seasons. The front court in the East, if the votes were to determine it, it would be Kevin Durant, Giannis, uh, Joel Embiid. And that's fair. I would actually probably make those guys the starters. If it weren't for Jared Allen, who is presently sixth amongst the Eastern Conference front court competitors. He is being topped at the moment by Jimmy Butler and Tatum, as well as those three I mentioned previously. But he is ahead of Bam Adebayo, Siakam, Miles Bridges, and LaMarcus Aldridge. How LaMarcus Aldridge, a man who didn't even start on the Nets, made the top 10 for votes in the front court. That is the problem. You're just going to get a bunch of big market players if you consistently allow the fan vote. They need to just get rid of it. Because the guards, DeMar DeRozan, very deserving. Trey Young, eh, debatably deserving. You got Levine up there, Harden, LaMelo Ball. Kyrie Irving, 
who just finally saw the floor for the first time this month, Derrick Rose, who isn't even a starter on the Knicks, they have received more votes. In fact, Kyrie Irving has more than doubled Darius Garland, who is presently ninth among the guards. Now, we knew he wasn't going to get in on the fan vote, but the fan vote is an abomination. Big market players in New York and L.A., or in the case of the Warriors, I guess just because they've been so successful, their fan votes are inflated. They're not reflectant of who actually deserves to be playing in the All-Star game. DeRozan should be a starter in the East. I think Fred Van Fleet should be the second starter in the East. You want to argue Trey Young or LaMelo Ball, I'm fine with that as well. But in my view, DeRozan's the clear-cut starter, and after that you have a few guys who are relatively equally worthy. The guys who are going to be hard-pressed to make the team are, there are a lot of capable guards. You've got DeRozan, you've got Young, you've got Levine, you've got Harden, you've got LaMelo, you've got Fred Van Fleet, you've got Darius Garland, and you've got Jalen Brown. That's eight guys I think I just listed off. They're not all going to make the All-Star game. Because in the front court, Durant, Giannis, Joel Embiid, Jared Allen, Tatum, Sabonis should be in there. He didn't even crack the top ten. And probably Butler. Those guys should make the All-Star game. Now, Butler's missed a fair amount of games, but I think he's going to get in just based on how productive he has been. We'll see. There are going to be a bunch of guys on the fringes. If they lean heavy towards the guards, then yeah, Garland can make it in. But I would not be shocked at all to see us looking at him on the outside looking in when the final fan votes are announced and when the final reserves are named. Now, of course, the fan vote does not dictate reserves. Though hopefully people will look at how well the Cavs have played, and they will reward Garland as the leader of that offense. I just, maybe it's the, the Cleveland fan in me, who's the woe is me part of me, but I think he might be hard-pressed to make it this year. So anyway, that's the podcast for this week. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already, at Fear the Fro Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me there. I live tweet most of the games. So thank you to all of you who have followed me, who have joined me for the podcast. And I am looking forward to another one in the near future here. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio and lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.